You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcasts. Today is October 12th, Thursday, CPI Day. Um, Consumer Price Index data came out today. Overall, uh, CPI was up 3.7% over the last 12 months. Um, If you look at the underlying data, it's a little bit of a different story. The composites of uh, transportation was up 9.1%, which is no surprise. But the big surprise and the the sort of misleading um, aspect of the CPI data um, was uh, is embedded in the shelter data, which, uh, according to the government, shelter has over the last twelve months has increased um, on a uh, on an inflationary basis by seven point two percent. Which Doug, you and I have talked about that that um, we think that's a, a farce essentially. And if you look at the actual um, the boots on the ground type of data, rents are falling uh, or flat. Home prices are are starting to fall, so that number is really misleading, um, and and uh, that's part of the Fed's calculus that that um, that they're trying to bring inflation down. But it's already kind of down if you look at it. If you look at what the real metric of shelter is, which is what true for true inflation looks at, inflation. If you take that aspect out or or, or ascribe more of a real time aspect to the shelter data, it shows that inflation's in the in the low twos. So per per true inflation. Inflation is at 2.37%. What we hear commonly from our clients, though, and this is, a, I think, a very a very astute observation, is that if you look at the actual erosion of purchasing power over the last three years, it's, it tells the, it's a totally different ballgame um, in the 2020 era as it is today. Um, and that's, that's because we had a, a period of, of inflation right after COVID where uh, numbers were up close to 10%, depending upon what source data you use. But Trueflation actually came out with this um, new metric called Trueflation Aggregated Inflationary Data, which shows the erosion of purchasing power since October of uh, 2020. And since October of 2020, they're saying that the uh, Americans' purchasing power has eroded by 20.41%. So even though inflation is coming down on a year-by-year basis, um, the Americans' purchasing power has really eroded over the last two to three years. And that trueflation data reconciles that. Um, Walt Disney World, not, not surprisingly, hiked prices again. Um, so the things people, and that was a headline today, people are just seeing um, some um, sort of inflationary numbers. And, and there's that psychological aspect to inflation that we, um, that we deal with on a day-by-day basis as Americans. Um, and uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how things play out from here. Um, the Fed uses this as a primary calculus in terms of whether or not they're going to raise rates or keep rates the way they are. But Doug, I'd love to get your thoughts on the inflation print today, the market's reaction to it, and what do you think that is going to be the outcome as it relates to the Federal Reserve? I, I think what you had mentioned earlier about the aggregated data that Trueflation <clears throat> posts now is really important, just simply because a 2% target doesn't mean that prices are going back to where they were pre-COVID. We had this huge inflationary cycle. The Fed is trying to get back to 2%. But the destruction in purchasing power by virtue of the 2020, 2021, and 2022 inflation numbers is pretty dramatic and people are feeling it. And so, again, we want to get back to 2%. We want to get steady inflation. 
but prices are not going back to 2019 numbers, and and that's what uh, is showing up in you know daily lives, and it's showing up in that trueflation data. It goes back to what we saw last week when we talked about home prices uh, being down on a year-over-year basis in places like uh, Austin or Nashville or San Francisco, but still being up 40 and 50 percent since pre-COVID. Same same deal. Um, prices are not going back to where they were pre-COVID simply because the money supply expanded so much. A lot of people had uh, extra dollars in their pockets and were spending. And as a result of that, uh, you know, more dollars chasing fewer goods leads to higher inflation. Uh, the, the positive news here is that uh, on a month-over-month basis, inflation is, is moderating pretty dramatically. The shelter component is, is coming down. The last time we looked at this, shelter was at 8%. Now it's at 7.2%. So that will be a tailwind to get the Federal Reserve back to its inflationary target of 2%. And this all comes back to what's the importance of all this, really. It's where interest rates are going to go from here. Uh, interest rates really lead the economy. And with the risk-free rate being at 5%, it's uh, hard to make any sort of decision on investing outside of uh, taking a risk-free 5% rate of return because, um, you know, what, what else would you do if, if the market's going to earn seven or 8% long-term but right now you can sit around clipping, clipping along at 5%. There's not enough spread there, not enough premium, uh, to take any sort of risk. So that's, uh, you know, showing up in equity markets, it's showing up in specifically the real estate market where there's higher levels of leverage. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, in, the interest rate story is a really important one. And the quicker the Federal Reserve can stabilize interest rates and potentially lower lower them, the more other asset classes have the ability to stabilize and and it, it hopefully continue to grow. Right. And speaking of Walt Disney World, now at Walt, this apartment, this is Disneyland in, in Anaheim, California. The single most expensive ticket increased from $179 a day to $194 a day. So just imagine taking a family of five or whatever, which is my, what my family is, to Disneyland is like you're spending $1,000 just on tickets to get in the place. And you have to pay all this, all these other ancillary costs like getting there, hotels, the, uh, the obligatory T-shirts and everything. It's just ridiculous. Um, and it's, uh, and I, I guess it's fun, but it's just, like, it's just amazing to me. And, and those are the sort of things that, that are, are this, this sort of shock and awe. Uh, related to where things were pre-COVID and where they are today. Um, so interesting times. Um, and you're right about as it relates to the the uh, yield on the, the 10-year treasury. Uh, it's kind of fallen a little bit in the last week or so. Um, surprisingly, um, the markets have actually, there's obviously a lot of crazy news, very sad news um, in the Middle East in terms of the, the attack Um of the of the uh, uh, Hamas militants on on Israel, um, but surprisingly, the markets the stock markets were positive on Monday. Uh, oil was initially oil was off significantly last week, um, and then rebounded as a result of the the uncertainty that that's created in the Middle East. Yields that actually historically there's been when you have some sort of uh, uh, exogenous event that creates uncertainty. Uh, there's usually a flight to safety, meaning like people will buy the most safe assets when there's there's fear or whatever and and that's usually the most the most safest asset is usually treasuries and so that re- responded in normal fashion um, this th- at one point a week or two ago the
the 10-year treasury got really close to 5%. It got up to like 4.9%, and that's moderated a little bit. Um, and now is about 4.6%, four, between 46 and 4.7% for the 10-year yield. Um, but you're right, it's it, at, as it stands now, the earnings yield on the S&P 500 and the treasury are really, really close to each other. So if there's not any sort of earnings growth in the S&P 500, you would get the same exact return on the treasury over the next 10 years. Of course, there's the potential for higher uh, growing earnings, et cetera, and that's what the, the uh, that's what equities offer. Um, but is it is a it does uh, present a dilemma from the standpoint of the, the uh, pricing of equities relative to treasuries nowadays. Yeah, and I think it's it's equities and it's also you know real estate. You're seeing uh, markets completely frozen in places like New Orleans, where uh, you have people that are stuck in three percent those golden handcuffs of three percent or less. Uh, mortgages that you know may think about uh, you know getting a bigger house, but don't want to give up that. And yeah, I was meeting with a client today that didn't want to give up a three percent mortgage, even though um, they wanted they actually wanted to downsize, and uh, their <laughs> note on the on the downsize would be equal to their current note on a three percent mortgage. So like, right, so why would you do anything yeah, different? Just stay in my house. Um, that's happening all over the place, and so. Uh, yeah, I think interest rates where they are now, especially after a period of a decade-long zero interest rate policy, uh, you know, going from zero to five percent overnight is causing some um, major shocks to specifically the real estate markets, and then obviously the bond market itself. I mean, we talked about this last week. The twenty-year Treasury is in a greater drawdown now than it was during than stocks were during the Great Financial Crisis. Uh, so if you're a bond investor, if, if your uh, theory was flight to safety, you don't want to mess with the stock market, well, you just went through uh, you know, a bear market that was greater than the greatest bear market in anybody's lifetime that's that's currently living right now. Um, you, know, you had some people that were around during the Depression, but we're, we're not investing during that period. And so there's, uh, this, there's this Bank of America produced this, this uh, history of uh, U.S. Treasury bond bear markets. And they had to go back. They went through the entire history of the country, um, like usually in usually in finance, um, like uh, in terms of graphs, et cetera. You you have like the the post, like the modern period, or at least the the period in the markets looks back to like the Great Depression till present or whatever. But they actually went back through the inception of the country, and uh, we are, according to Bank of America, we're in the the greatest Treasury bear market of all time, which began in 2020. Um, and the peak to trough performance in the, in the treasury market um, is negative 25%. This is through the end of October of 2022. So it's been even more exacerbated since then. But the closest uh, uh, period in terms of, the, of negativity and in, in terms of, of, the, uh, in terms of uh, the, the history of the United States was in the years preceding the Civil War and then in 1835 to 1839. I don't even know what that is in, in terms of American history. But just s- simply an unprecedented event in the in the bond markets, like you're talking about, and that is reverberating around uh, the uh, economy. Anything that's interest rate sensitive, like housing, like you're mentioning, is uh, is certainly going to be affected by changes in interest rates. And there's all these other knockoff effects, like that nobody would have anticipated during COVID at the outset that all of a sudden people would, since people were spending so much time in their homes, that um, that that people would want to remodel their homes. Now, nobody would have anticipated that 
housing prices would have stayed relatively stable because nobody wanted to sell because it made no sense to sell, like you're saying, um, in, in today's interest rate environment. So there's all kinds of knockoff effects from these uh, unprecedented times. Um, and there, and unprecedented times, is, I don't mean that to, to, to sound scary because there's always unprecedented things happening at ever, any given point in time. Um, and uh, that's kind of the interesting thing about the markets. But this is really an interesting dynamic that exists today is these interest rates. Um, speaking of sort of if you look back at history, the one of the most common uh, retorts on Twitter um, when somebody posts like the, his, the history of the markets is to say, now do Japan. Because like if you look at like, for example, the, the recovery in the markets and if you overlay that with Japan's data, uh, Japan had like a was like the the uh, top dog basically for decades. Um, and, um, and they were, they had a boom related to the post-war economy, um, and Toyota and all these like, uh, Mitsubishi, et cetera. Um, they had, a, and, and then if you look at real estate in Tokyo, it's the same sort of thing where there was a huge bubble in the real estate in Tokyo. Um, but it looks like as of now, uh, the all-time high in the Nikkei, which is the Japanese stock market was 33 years ago. And we're, um, we're, it looks like we're knocking on the door of that, of, of, uh, J- Japan's knocking on the door of, of hitting all-time highs. So lots of interesting things happening all the time in the markets, U.S., international, et cetera. That, that reminds me of something that uh, Nick Majuli said, which I think is incredibly important. Um, and this is specific to that Japan comment about th- a 33-year bear market. You don't recover for um, you know a generation um, to where you were at previous highs. He says, uh, if you had invested from 1960 to 1980, this is the U.S. market, and beaten the market by 5% per year, you would have made less money than if you had invested from 1980 to 2000 and underperformed the market by 5% a year. Sometimes when you start investing, it can be more important than anything else. And so a lot of the, uh, the jargon in our industry specifically is performance relative to a benchmark and performance relative to the market. Sometimes it just comes down to getting lucky and being born in the right era. And if you were born and started investing, you know, born in the 40s and started investing in the 60s, um, you you were born in the wrong era compared to born in the 60s or 50s and started investing in the 80s up till 2000. Uh, so yeah, a lot of it is just luck. And then, you know, on the margins, performance, positive or negative compared to some sort of benchmark. You're 100% right about that. I mean, imagine these people in Japan that were just so happened to uh, be in, entering into the job market, et cetera, and investing 33 years ago. They probably thought they were top dogs making money hand over fist. And then, lo and behold, there was a huge crash or whatever. Um, so I think the, the sort of sentiment that exists is probably a uh, reverse indicator of what the the uh, in- investment climate is and and that, at that point in time in japan 33 years ago i'm pretty sure that there was some major exuberance and excess um, which then led to significant underperformance of course as ev- evidenced by history and then p- people were really bearish on japan for many years and they were bought a couple of years ago right <clears throat> right exactly and then warren buffett started to buy some japanese stuff or not warren buffett but yeah he did berkshire at yeah, well, Berkshire Hathaway, yeah. yeah, one and the same, I guess. Started to buy some Japanese stocks a couple of years ago, just because the, the price to earnings metrics made sense, and um, so it's it's all of a sudden it started to come back into vogue um, because there are some quality companies that exist there, and when there's that negativity, that um, the opposite of, of exuberance, which is that sort of pessimism, 
It's usually a good entry point. Um, that's not always the case, of course, um, but it usually is a pretty good indicator. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, I, I think this is a Warren Buffett saying, but it's not somebody correct me, but um, the old adage that it's price is what you pay and value is what you get. If you're going to be overpaying for something, then you're going to deal with the consequences of that. And depending on, by, on how much you overpay for it, depends on how long you deal with those consequences. So if you're buying Japanese stocks in the late 1980s, then uh, you've got some serious problems and you're going to dig yourself out of a hole for 30 plus years. But if you're buying U.S. stocks in 2009 when the price-to-earnings ratio is 10 times, then you have 15 years of pretty solid results. Uh, it goes back to your comment earlier about the treasury markets and how we're in the worst treasury bear market in history. Well, why is that? Well, treasuries were, you know, 10-year treasury was at 50 basis points in 2020, maybe a little bit less than that. Uh, it's hard to uh, garner any sort of return out of a 50 basis point treasury unless you're just hoping that the treasury yields go negative. And so um, that's just a hope um, that, you know, treasury return is you get the value that you pay for. You're getting 50 basis points per year. And if, if rates go up to 5%, you're, uh, you're not looking pretty good there on your 50 basis point bond. Uh, one thing I'll say about the treasury markets that we glossed over on this chart, the it, it goes uh, peak to trough performance, which uh, right now 10-year treasury is in a 25% drawdown. Um, but it also goes through uh, all other instances. Uh, there's about 12 of them or so going back to 1811 um, of bear markets and treasuries of greater than 10%. And then it goes through the recovery one year from trough and, and back to uh, you know some sort of peak after the trough period. So for the second worst bear market, the one-year recovery return was 32%, the, th the third worst, 19%, the fourth worst, 8%, fifth worst, 18%, sixth worst, 43%. So there's a mean reversion component here that, um, you know, if history's any guide would play out in this bear market. And so you don't abandon bonds simply by virtue of going through a period of pretty poor returns, just like you don't abandon stocks after the great financial crisis, there is mean reversion. Now there's value in the bond market. And so if rates go from 5% to 3% because you know Federal Reserve is cutting again, inflation is tempered, then you're going to be somebody that's going to want to own treasuries or just bonds in general. Yeah. I mean, if you, especially if you, if you have a mortgage or whatever that you got at the last two or three years and it's paying two or 3%, you can instead of paying that mortgage down, you can keep your liquidity and you can go buy a five percent treasury and earn a, a, a delta on the difference and earmark those funds potentially to pay off your mortgage and keep liquidity. So there's there's a whole lot of opportunities that exist in the bond um, market that that just simply didn't exist a few years ago. Um, in the stock market, we just uh, and we talked we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but we just got through the seasonally seasonably worst time of the year um, in uh, September. Um, no surprise that we had a, a bad period of time because typically the markets are bad in September. Not always, of course, um, but we're approaching the, uh, the the seasonally the best time of the year. Um, October, November, December usually is a pretty good period of time. Of course, anything can happen at any given point in time. Um, I think uh, bl like Black Monday or Black Tuesday or whatever, like one of the big sell-offs occurred in October. Like the, maybe the Great Depression, big. So anything can happen at any any given point in time seasonally. But we are we are in um, a seasonally good time of the year, and this is from um, from Carson Research. And pick a reason, but stocks tend to bottom in October, 
In fact, seven of the past 18 bear markets ended in October. Um, and then if you look at this, historically, the market is up about 81% of the time here through the end of the year. Um, so season, seasonality is no longer your friend is, is what they're saying. And then, um, but as you can say, as you can ascribe seasonality, season of seasonality to uh, historical market returns, there's sometimes coincident in, uh, data. And this is also from Nick Majuli, who we just referenced. He tracks the S&P 500 um, when the McRib from McDonald's is available. And the McRib, uh, the S&P 500 uh, daily return is 0.08% versus the uh, the uh, without McRib days, which is 0.04%. The McRib is back. So hopefully that means that we're going to get some some uh, nice returns. Doug, what does that, have you had a McRib? Never, but I, I wonder if it's because it it actually shows up in uh, you know in the fourth quarter of every year when it's typically a good year for markets. So I wonder if there's a correlation there. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good yeah. point. <laughs> J.C. Parrots, who's a, uh, uh, a technical analyst. Uh, who's actually been pretty good. I actually heard him on a podcast in February of 21, and he said this is the market top. And he was saying that because uh, a lot of the sl uh, small cap growth companies that were all the uh, craze during 2020, 2021 started rolling over in early 2021. Um, and then the the big mega cap stocks really held their own until the end of the year. And then 2020, they rolled over. But he said... Uh, and so he called that. He he also called uh, this year to be a positive year simply because of uh, third year of presidential election cycle, which we talked about earlier in the year. Uh, but what he says, and uh, you know, take from take this from for whatever it's worth. He says, "Welcome to the year end rally. The data is showing the bears are back, claiming inflation, the Fed, or perhaps war will send stocks much lower. We're taking the other side of that and buying stocks, and simply because it's the the time of year." Uh, and the time of cycle where uh, where people are generally bullish and, and markets generally grow. I hope he's right. It's been a long slog in, I mean, we talked about the, the bond market is in the worst bear market in history. The stock market hasn't done anything for two years. We're I would say, the real, I mean, the real estate market is, is at least entering, uh, if not the worst, the second worst period um, in history. And so uh, going back, um, you know, 2008 was a horrible period in the real estate market. But uh, if you're looking at a lot of the data, especially coming out with uh, refinancings and CMBS, uh, that that market over the next uh, couple of years looks like real estate's entering one of its uh, worst periods of all time. And so you know, bond market, worst period of all time, real estate market, w one of the worst or you know, second worst period of all time. So yeah, wasn't the, the Starwood guy said we were entering a, cap a category five storm in real estate or something like yeah. that? Uh, yeah, uh, Barry Sternlich. And so I, I think, uh, it's, it's crazy that a diversified portfolio is really held up and that's the, that's the benefit of having diversification, but it also means that there's likely opportunity in fixed income and in real estate over the next couple of years for those that, you know, typically rebalance out of things that are doing well and on a relative basis, stocks and short-term bonds are doing well and into things that are not doing well, whether it's real estate or long-term bonds, uh, that would be a, a, a rebalance scenario over the next uh, few quarters that, in my opinion, would long-term work out for investors. Right. You're, you're talking about doing what we're, we, we, I was just talking about people that when there's exuberance, it's usually a negative sign. And when there's pessimism 
and blood in the streets or whatever is the time to be um, looking at and, and dipping your toe in the water historically. And there's about to be blood in the streets in real estate, and um, it looks like at least. Um, and if and the, if uh, Stern is, has any sort of inclination or if his inclination is right, then it's going to be a rough time, but it should be should present some interesting opportunities. So, Doug, I wanted to talk. You have this on here related to Ozempic. Um, and this, there's a talk about knockoff effects related to that. It's really interesting. Like uh, fast food stocks are and like junk food stocks, et cetera, like Hershey's, for example, is off like 20% or something like that. The, the thought is, is that as um, Ozempic, which decreases people's urge to eat, is more broadly available, then people are going to be less inclined to eat junk food. And so junk food stocks um, are pricing themselves less. Alcohol alcohol, et cetera. Um, it's, it, what happened today was, uh, Ozempic shows promise treating kidney failure and, and, uh, and, and as a result of that, uh, entities that, that are operate in the dialysis space are selling off today. Uh, kidney drug firms are selling off today. So there's really interesting sort of effects as these sort of breakthrough technologies. It seems um, like, it seems like it's the wonder drug. I mean, I think everyone, um, is viewing it with a little bit of a slanted eye simply because it's, it can't be this, it's almost too good to be true. It's uh, you know, it's a, it curbs alcoholism. It, it's an appetite suppressant. It's a weight loss drug. It's a diabetes drug. Uh, and now it's now, now Zempic and, um, the Eli Lilly, we, we is showing promise treating kidney failure, but it's funny. The reason I posted this is that, uh, Morgan Hazel, stated, is there no such thing as good news? And this is like the typical headline in financial media and really in media in general. It says, <laughs> Ozempic shows promise treating kidney failure in a blow to dialysis firms. Like uh, this is a negative. And it's like, wait a second, isn't it a right. good thing that- right. uh, a blow to like funeral parlors <laughs> or whatever. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. It's like, this is typical uh, headlines. And, it's, and it goes to show you that people that- are successful in life and successful in, in investing ignore this sort of negativity that is constantly a barrage uh, to you know try to get you to change your strategy and change your outlook and and even things that are positive are spun as negative and so this is a, a prime example of something that should be viewed as uh, you know almost salvation for people that have kidney issues and, and it's viewed in this particular headline as a negative to dialysis firms it is, it is hilarious you're 100 percent right so shifting gears related to a couple of uh, things that are viewed very positively in my household uh, this is a, a Kansas City Chiefs reference um, if you don't know if you're living under a rock Taylor Swift is dating the uh, star tight end of the Kansas City Chiefs Travis Kelsey and so all of a sudden, all of the ladies in my household are very interested in football, and, and they're actually playing on Thursday night, and apparently Taylor's going to be there. And so um, we would not be watching the Chiefs-Broncos game otherwise, but we're going to be watching it tonight. But if you do end up watching the Chiefs, know that you're watching one of the greats in Patrick Mahomes. Um, what's, Mahomes her, what's, her de- what's her deal, by the way? I don't get – I mean, I, I have a daughter, but she's two, and so I don't get the uh, obsession with Taylor Swift. Why is it like my my sister Sam, your wife, and my sister in law Brett too are just absolutely obsessed, and their kids are too, with Taylor Swift, and I just don't get it. I don't get it at all. I don't get it either. But I'm like a a dude, a dad that just like you know I'm there to support this uh, 
addiction. I guess it's probably what people in the '60s were saying about these. Why are these like people the screaming after the Beatles? Yeah, exactly. or the Spice like, Girls, or I, yeah, uh, they. Love I mean, it. I my, think she's good. She her music's actually pretty decent. I just don't understand the obsession. Yeah. Um, my four-year-old daughter like knows all the words to her songs, which is kind of cute. That like she knows the words to these these like she has no idea what they actually mean but she knows like word for word it's really cute it's also a girl thing my my son doesn't really care i don't know so anyway uh as it relates but now they're totally into the chiefs it's crazy um in recognition though that well if you do watch the chiefs so you know that you're watching one of the greats patrick mahomes has beaten 31 nfl teams so he's beaten every team except, except the chiefs of course um and he's the youngest person to do it the first uh there's only been 10 quarterbacks in history that have done it He's the first one to do it under the age of 30. He's amazing. If you watch him, he's won two Super Bowls already. Young guy. Uh, happened to lose to the TCU Frogs uh, in college, uh, that was, which was that an was amazing the best game. game. Yeah, it was the best game I've ever seen. Yeah, it was amazing. It was, if you, if you, there was a highlight um, with the, when we won. It was a walk-off win, basically, but it was a, a deflection that we caught it. It was ama- an amazing game. Um, and then I want to close uh, with a uh, recognition of – of human development and, and uh, evolution of really this is this is not really an evolutionary thing but just a competitive thing. A um, hundred years ago, the uh, fastest marathon was two hours and thirty minutes. A gentleman, um, I believe it was last week, uh, is now ran the marathon in two hours and thirty five seconds. So, and the, over the course of a hundred years. We have cut off 30 minutes off of the marathon time, which is just kind of crazy to think about, um, even since there's not any sort of species evolution or anything, but just a um, just dynamics and sports and everything. Pretty crazy to think about. Um, and you know, I wonder, if it's, it seems like it's only a matter of time before we break the, the two-hour the two hour mark. Um, I certainly won't be one, the one to do it, but I'll be watching. Yep, pretty amazing. Well, thank you for joining, uh, and thank you for listening, and please share with your friends and continue to give us a five-star review. Uh, This is Lanyet Podcast with Doug and Greg Stokes. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.